You're listening to American City and County's Young Leaders Podcast, a podcast series that will run throughout 2020, where we will get to know the next generation of local government. Thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Omnia Partners Public Sector. Omnia Partners is the most experienced cooperative purchasing organization for state and local government, K-12 education, and colleges and universities. Their immense purchasing power and industry-leading suppliers have produced an extensive portfolio of, of procurement solutions, making Omnia Partners a valued and trusted resource for public agencies nationwide. View their expansive contract portfolio at omniapartners.com slash public sector. Derek Prawl, editor of American City and County Magazine. Uh, thanks a lot for listening to our third episode of our Young Leaders podcast. We have with us Columbus, Ohio's City Council President, Shannon Harden. Uh, Shannon, can you introduce yourself to the audience and give us a little idea about your career and, and your background in local politics? Derek, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an honor to be on the podcast. Uh, so um, my name is Shannon Harden. I was born and raised here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I got my start really in local politics by being an intern um, for our former mayor, uh, Michael Coleman, who was the first African-American mayor and the longest serving mayor of our city. My mom uh, started working in City Hall when uh, several months before I was born, she was the front desk clerk at City Council in 1986. Um, and worked uh, in City Hall her entire career um, as an assistant. And so that really gave me proximity to um, uh, City Hall, downtown policymakers in a way that many young folk, young Black boys from um, the inner city or from, from specifically where I'm from, the south side of Columbus, would never have had that opportunity. And so... Um, in high school, we had a requirement to do internships, and I chose to do my internship uh, in what was then called the Mayor's Action Center. Um, it is the precursor to the 311 call centers that many uh, cities have now. Uh, but back then, uh, in early 2000, it was uh, three old white ladies, who I, uh, one <laughs> who I love to this day and who really is the basis of my um what I believe public service really is. Uh, her name was Mary Funk. She ran that, that that little office in the basement of a building across the street from City Hall. And our job literally was to answer the phone from folks calling in uh, with uh, really con- just what I learned. Folks were calling in really more to just lodge their um, objections or concerns about something. Not really. Okay. Not really expecting that things would change, but they wanted to make sure that City Hall and maybe the mayor knew. And so, you know, we just feel heard kind of thing. heard. But it, it, it wasn't like a 311 line. It was more so that people could just voice their complaints. Well, no. So it was a 311 line. But what I oh, okay. but I think it was a precursor to a 311. But I still think that because folks um, have become cynical and are cynical of public service, um, their calls in were, especially at that time, were the the traditional, you know, um, the the met the the, uh, the the guys who were supposed to pick up our trash uh, drove by and didn't pick up my trash, and I'm just calling because I'm mad and I know you're not going to do anything. And um, you know, I to this day, my my favorite part about public service is being able to connect over, call the public refuse department, and say, hey, you missed the uh, the the trash at such and such uh, address and such and such street. 
would you go back out there? And they say yes and give us give us the time and to be able to click back over and tell that caller, you know what, we're going to send somebody back out. Uh, if you can have your trash out by four o'clock um, and, and just by that um, interaction, um, that little bit of local government working for me. Um, be able to to really light, uh, brighten up someone's day and change their interpretation of what um, their government can and would do for them really got me hooked on um, uh, on on government, but but specifically on local government uh, because of the connection, because it was so granular and, and intricate, and because you could um, have the the effect quickly. You know, no, you know, like it, it was literally. That day, what she could see that her advocacy or her engagement had changed and 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 was being affected um, is really what drove it. What pulled me into to local government public service. Um, I worked in that that office for several years. Um, I went away to college uh, to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. Hey, where I'm from. Oh, <laughs> I, I love yeah. Atlanta. Uh, I, yeah, Atlanta's great. I um, worked uh, an internship. I probably did more political and government work than I did school work, and that's why I got out of college, <laughs> thank the Lordy. Uh, <laughs> but um, worked for, uh, interned in the, the mayor's office and, and for city council in, in Atlanta, and then came back up. Uh, I graduated in 2009, right in the heart of uh, the... Uh, recession. And uh, the former mayor at that time said, you know, when you graduate, I'll have a job for you. So I, I started working for, for the mayor in 2010. Um, and uh, for several years, I was in his uh, external affairs office. Um, I did that for several years, moved up to director of external affairs um, in, in Mayor Coleman's office. And as that as having that job, one of my roles was uh, the liaison to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And uh, so I traveled a lot with the mayor. And I can remember uh, after about six years working for him uh, on a flight back to Columbus, he said, you know what, Shannon, it's time for you to run for office. And I said, um, mayor, you know what, I'm, I'm too liberal for this city. And he's like, Shannon, what are you talking about? And I'm like, mayor, I'm, I'm, I'm too young. I think I was 26 years old then. And he said, uh, Shannon, I know you're young. And I said, well, mayor, I'm young and I'm black. And he's like, Shannon, I, I see you're black. I know you're <laughs> and, I, and then I said, no, Mayor, I'm young, I'm black, and I'm gay. And um, he said, you know, that's only an issue if it's an issue for you. And, and actually, it's the reason why I'm saying you need to run, because this city is becoming younger and more diverse, and they have to see themselves represented in their elected leadership. And so this, that yeah. now more than ever, is the reason um, uh, and the time for you to, 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 to go and run. And so... Um, uh, I, I took that that advice and um, uh, and uh, a seat the next year opened up on city council. I went for it. The, the thing that they said back then was you go for it the first time just to show people that you're really interested. You don't get it. Um, and then the second time you go for it, then you'll have more chances. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I was ready that first time. I think I was just following that type of guidance, but I accidentally got it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so I became one of the youngest council members and um, the first African-American gay council member of our city. Sure. Um, and then uh, uh, three years later, in 2018, I was uh, elected president of our city council. Sure. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that um, kind of two ideas that you brought up as, um, you know, uh, young minority 
openly homosexual person, uh, running for office is obviously, you know, you, you, you don't really see yourself represented in local government. I think that a lot of people have an idea of local government and the type of person who uh, has leadership roles, uh, you know, in, in these entities. Can, can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you faced, um, you know, just personally, uh, you know, going through this race, going through, uh, you know, the process of becoming elected and even even after the election, um, you know, what, what were what were some of those challenges? So so I was actually appointed. It was a it was an open seat. So I was appointed okay. first. But but I, but but still the same things happened. And, and when I ran as well to hold my seat, um, I remember, you know, uh, I guess I was open. I mean, this was 2014, 2013, 2014. And so I, I was open about my sexuality. It just, just was not something I led with. And so uh, when I got appointed to council, the next day, the title of the article about me was Council Appoints uh, First Openly Gay Black Council Member. I, I read that article. I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of was blown away because I was like, oh, shoot, I'm gay. Now that I, you know, you almost think <laughs> that, that would be the lead. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I quickly had to call my pastor and a couple other folks like, uh, this is also uh, a part of the story. Um, but Yeah, hey, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. But, you know, but Columbus is a progressive city and it was even progressive back then. And so, yeah, you know, I was really embraced um, by, uh, by by the community uh, at that time. And so, you know, so, and, and the one funny story I was told was that... Uh, you know, Shannon, because I also was the liaison at that time before I got on council to to, um, to the uh, uh, to the faith community, and so <laughs> one who, one pastor said, "You know, Shannon, we're going to stick with you. Um, we're not going to come out against you." Um, they didn't endorse me, like the, the Baptist convention who and, and folks that, that I worked really close with. They wouldn't endorse me, but they said, "We won't come out against sure. you." Um, as long as you don't uh, walk down High Street uh, waving a flag, waving the gay flag. And it's always funny because uh, each year at Pride, that's like my favorite thing to do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to say like, well, <laughs> right. I, I think that probably happens. Right, most definitely. I actually wear the flag on my, my shirt. Um, sure. It says I'm your city council president. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, they came around. I mean, just like a lot of things, proximity matters. And so... Yeah, absolutely. When, you know, I, you know, you know I'm, I'm black and gay, so I have this interest, uh, intersection, uh, intersectionality about, about just my being. And so the black church community was saying, you know what, we'll stick with you as long as you don't, you know, act maybe too gay. And then <laughs> um, the, the white gay community or just the gay community was saying, what is this affiliation with uh, this, this church and these churches? And these yeah. Why is that important? You know, conservative, you know, they have a conservative stance on homosexuality. And what, what I've always learned and what I've always believed is that proximity matters. And so the best way to change a person is to know a person. And so, you know, uh, being close and being a member of a historic African-American Baptist church in, in my city um, was a way for me to 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 teach people and to 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 let them know that I'm just like their son or or, or nephew or, or anybody else and you know and, and my church has changed just because they had an openly gay person that that didn't leave um, mm-hmm. and 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 so you know 
it has, it, it, and now, you know, I, I'm married and, and we have, you know, uh, Columbus is a, is a very embracing community. And so um, it, it really has just been a, a, a real, uh, an honor now to talk about being openly gay. And I don't talk about it much unless I'm in front of, truthfully, um, young, openly, uh, young gay folks, because I want them to know for sure. sure that they can be anything they want to be. Um, and, um, that they don't have to hide it. They don't have to be ashamed. They just have to be the best, um, and that they can succeed in, in it. And so that, that's, that's really how I, how I talk about it now. Sure. And that, that, uh, that brings up this idea of representation and particularly representation in local governments. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like I said, you know, we kind of have this idea of, who a local government official is and what they look like and what their ideas are. And even getting back to uh, your experience um, when you were in high school of this idea that local government is ineffective, that, uh, you know, Hey, I'm going to complain about this, but I don't expect you to do anything. Um, You know, changing the ideas of uh, like, shaping the way that people think about local government and the types of people who work and serve in local government, I think is very important. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your, uh, the, the way that you're trying to change that representation? Well, I think representation is critically important. Um, folks not only have to see themselves in their elected leaders, but they also have to know that their um, personal experiences are known and felt by people downtown, by people in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and truthfully, in Columbus, I, you know, I don't know if we were doing the best of, at, at that. Columbus is the largest city in the country that does not have a ward system um, or and we are a completely at large system. So our seven members represent all nine hundred and fifteen thousand people oh, in wow. our city. Uh, and we could all live in the same apartment building if we would like to. Sure. Uh, and so for, for several years, this conversation about representation um, continued to come up and uh, folks try to get different ballot initiatives uh, to the ballot uh, to change our charter um, to make us a ward system. And I never supported pure ward, ward systems. I do. I, I believe that um, they uh, a, a, a ward system that is only uh, a ward and not hybrid um, breeds uh, them versus us that I'm talking okay. for just this side of town or this community. Um, yeah. And doesn't give the global perspective to really move a, a, a city forward. So, but we, we had to hear the cry of folks. And, and what we did was we put together a committee uh, two years ago uh, that I led to say, okay, we do need to, to reform how this council is, is made. We hadn't made any changes to council structure in over a hundred years. Um, hmm. And so um, we, we uh, had this committee meet, they made recommendations. And what they did was, they recommended that we go to a hybrid system or what we call by place, which means that um, each council member will have a residency requirement. So we will create wards per se. Um, each council member will have to live in a ward, but they will still be at large council members. They will still be represent, uh, voted uh, by all folks in the community. Sure. So, sure. so that way it, it was, um, in my opinion, uh, I thought it was a, a neat recommendation because it allowed for for folks to because what, what I believe that the community was saying when they said they wanted ward representation was they wanted to know that somebody downtown had drove 
down this street that I drive down to see all these potholes or they they want to know that somebody downtown that saw that small business that was there for all these years but is not there anymore uh, mm-hmm. and, and could use that in terms of policy making and so having this having that type of representation that is coming uh, and we will make that transition uh, as council uh, in the next two years. Um, and so we have the work to do to, to, to lead up to that. We're also, it's part of that, they recommended that we add two council members. So we're going from seven council members to nine council members, okay. 23. Uh, but I, rep- representation, it, it, it certainly matters. And we have to be open to the change uh, uh, when it is demanded, really. Gotcha. So speaking of uh, demanding change, um, we are obviously in a tumultuous period uh, as a country. And, you know, we are we're feeling uh, pressures for social and civil change uh, through um, through a lot of protests uh, that are that are going on, you know, even today across the country, uh, pressures for social reform, for police reform, uh, for more representation of minorities in local government right. and in decision making processes. Can can you talk a little bit about uh how that looks in Columbus and uh, how things are changing uh, b- because of because of these pressures and because of these protests. Certainly. Um, well, you know, what started in uh, Minneapolis with George Floyd uh, made its way through Columbus as well. Um, and truthfully, uh, it, George Floyd was just the inflection point that rose mm-hmm. to the top. A lot of issues that had been in Columbus for many, many years since I have been in office uh, certainly, and, and have heard the cries of folks who have been in uh, in, in need. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know if folks have, have seen uh, what happened in Columbus, but we had some of the largest protests, um, truthfully, in, in the country. We had thousands and thousands of people take to the streets, hold the streets. Um, uh, several days after the protest started, uh, we were having the some some issues around looting at night and um, vandalism, of course, that, that was happening around the country. Uh, myself, uh, Congresswoman Beatty, uh, and Commissioner Boyce, the three highest ranking African-Americans uh, in elected office in our community, we went out to, to talk to the protesters. One, as a as an act of just making sure that the protests were peaceful, but to say that we supported and heard them, that we were there to hear them. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in being out at that protest, um, we got to see firsthand what was going on in our city at that time, which was that the police were uh, were, were acting in an, an overly aggressive way towards peaceful protesters. Um, we were actually pepper sprayed, um, both oh, my, myself, uh, Congresswoman Beatty, and Commissioner Boyce, um, and that sparked uh, it's a whole uh, thing in itself. And so, you know. I think what is important about this moment and about this time is that um, we understand that the 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 uh, the weight and size of the moment. Um, I think that what we're going through right now is akin to the uh, civil uh, parts of the civil rights movement to '68 and '69, where. Um, in American history, you have these inflection points where you're able to do things that you aren't able to do any other time. Uh, sure. People will stand up in numbers um, and that they're, it's lasting, that there has to be change. Um, and really, our job as elected leaders are is to understand that moment and to uh, understand that um, 
things have to change and, and things have to change in, in real ways or, uh, or, or the populace, the people won't uh, take it. And so, um, you know, you no, know, for us, and, and the important thing about this moment as well is that um, I think that we have to give dignity to the moment. We have to understand that it, Yes, it's about police reform, but police reform is just one piece of this. It's one element. It's one element. We're talking about structural racism, 400 years of this. And and if we're saying it's structural, if we're saying it's institutional, that means that it's uh, in our uh, housing policy. It's in our uh, private sector. It's in nonprofits. It's it's everywhere. As an elected leader, um, the specific focus right now is on police reform, and, and we're taking that very seriously. But I also think that as... Americans and as folks in local communities, uh, we have to understand and be open to the conversation uh, holistically about structural racism and, and, and where it finds itself and being comfortable in the uncomfortableness. And even more so as we get into policy changes and policy reform conversation, being comfortable in the unknown. Because if, if and, and I've talked to my colleagues and I talked to the community about this, if this was, uh, if there was a roadmap to um, holistic, you know, having wholesale change and, and reform and policing and such, uh, we wouldn't have had the protests in the first place. We are charting new new um, roads, and 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 what I encourage folks and and especially leaders uh, of communities is to to invite folks to come along for the journey. Um, and and I think that that's what we are all all on in in our country right now. And in the 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 early days of the the protests and civil unrest. Folks were saying, you know, you got to put out your policy reform right now. You got to you got to tell folks right now you got to strike strike while the iron is hot. And and while I do believe that this is a specific moment and that we do have to go for the fences and do as much as we can as the people are demanding while we have the focus of the uh, of America on us. I, I do say, too, though, that this is different because they would bring up the examples of Sandy Hook. Um, uh, and, and seeing our, our babies um, shot in, uh, in Connecticut and, and, uh, and still not getting the police reform or the gun reforms that folks thought would happen after that. Or they would bring up Rodney King and say, you know, there was cause for reform, you know, in 92 after uh, Rodney King, but nothing happened. And, and what I would point out as, as a difference between instances like that is, that what we went through as Americans uh, six weeks ago uh, in the early days of the uprising and, and protests was a Dionysian experience. Um, regardless of almost any city that you were in across America, there was civil unrest. Um, there, there was, you know, what happened in Sandy Hook and what happened in L.A. those years ago to most Americans was thousands of miles away from it. So regardless of how bad it was, it still was kind of over there that happened. What we just yeah. went through happened, if you live downtown in many cities, happened downstairs. Um, you got to see it and you got to touch it. You got to feel it in a very intimate way. And we may not all come to the same conclusions about where we go from here, but we all went through the same thing. We all felt sure. the same thing. We all saw our city looking very, you know, way in a, you know, we, we had to call in the National Guard. We had tanks in our downtown. We had, um, Many of our buildings, uh, the windows uh, busted out. Uh, folks took the state house for a night. Um, mm-hmm. Things happened that we had never seen before, and um, that that level of crying out, that level of um, 
civil unrest demands that we rise to the, the moment. Um, there's been too much pain. There's been too many tears, not just from the protests, um, but from the protesters and people of color who have, have lived uh, under structural racism for 400 years that we have to dignify the moment with real change. And that the change um, that you're that you're speaking of specifically in Columbus, um, it sounds like uh, police reform is a major part of that. And you've been an advocate for police reform. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in you know, in, in this aftermath, can yeah. can you talk can you talk about um, what that reform would look like? What are, what are you advocating for specifically? Certainly. So so what I tell uh, policymakers and what I've told colleagues and not just on my council, but other elected officials is that, what, you know, we have more eyes on us now than ever. And that's a great thing, actually. We have more folks uh, who are intimately looking at city halls and city councils and mayors in ways that they've never done so before. And so they're new to the process. They're new to governing. They're new to uh, policymaking. And so what I tell folks who are, who are policymakers is you have to be uh, extremely clear about what you're talking about right now. Sure. You, have, you have to tell people what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, how they can be involved, um, and what what is the intended outcome. Um, and so that that's what we did four weeks ago, uh, almost to the day. Um, I gather we, uh, my council members, we had been talking. Um, it had been two weeks after the protest started. Um, there were different ideas circling around, and I said, you know what, we're not going to be able to solve everything right away, but we have to. Um, we have to make sure that there is legitimacy in our policy making from the people looking at this building and looking at this council. So let's come up with some things that we know that we can get done. Our council takes uh, an August recess, um, historically has. Uh, and so we knew that we had to take that break in our chart. Our charter says that we have to take uh, a, a period of, of, of time uh, sure. in, in, uh, uh, throughout the year. So. We, we knew that we had five weeks till our, our August break. And so um, that gave me a time window to say, this is what we're going to do. And this is when we're going to do it by. And so we came up with a policy agenda, a short term policy, policy agenda. And that's what we told the community. And it consisted of four things that I believed and knew that, that if we worked really hard, and I mean really hard, um, we would be able to get done before break. Um, and those things were... Um, uh, no knock, uh, eliminating or reforming how we do no knock warrants in Columbus. Mm-hmm. No knock warrants is what um, Brianna, uh, uh, Brianna Taylor in, yeah. in Kentucky. Uh, we said that we would have a conversation and, and vote on demilitarization of of the police department by uh, the end of July. We said that we would have a conversation, take a vote on eight group affiliations uh, and background checks for new police officers uh, in, in the police department. And we said that we would have a conversation and vote on uh, civilian review board and independent investigatory uh, uh, bodies, uh, setting up an independent investigatory body by the end of, uh, of this July. And what that allowed for is people to know very clearly what our short-term goals were. Um, we set out to have hearings uh, on each one of those topics. We talked to police community members um, to date. We've had on those four issues, uh, we had four hearings. Um, they they uh, combined or nearly 20 hours of hearings that we've had in the last four weeks. Um, gotcha. We talked to uh, uh, one of our hearings, we had over a thousand written testament, testimonies. It went six hours. We had 80 people um, speak. 
Um, and and we're now we're in that last week where we're actually coming up with the legislation that we'll vote on in 10 days. Um, and we told folks, this is not the panacea that's going to keep all black men alive that, you know, in, engage with police. This is not the end all. But what, what we said was this is the short term goal. The long term goal in the process that we also laid out well, when, we, when we come back from August break is a process of reimagining policing. Uh, we have to, as a community, come together and talk about what we really want um, community policing, community safety to, to really mean for Columbus going forward. Um, and, and for me, when I'm, I'm reimagining uh, public safety, I'm thinking about uh, my next door neighbor who's 85 who has dementia. If I were to see her get into a dispute with one of her relatives, her young grandson, um, I, I would imagine when I'm reimagining public safety, I'd rather have somebody I could call that could, or as a trained social worker, um, that could come and intervene, um, or a mental health specialist that could come and intervene, rather than having somebody come um, that hadn't necessarily had a gun uh, or, or, or a traditional police officer. And, you know, as we reimagine here in Columbus, we have very specific examples that we can already point to that, is, that are working in Columbus. Um, we have a program called the REACT program. It is uh, to deal with um, our opioid uh, epidemic that we have in Columbus. Um, it, it was It's a group of three individuals that, that respond to opioid-related uh, police calls. It's one police officer, one um, uh, opioid health worker, and a firefighter, or EMT, that go out to these opioid calls. We have found that, that when the REACT team goes to a call, they, they arrest uh, the person 90% less often than sure. only a police officer goes, 90% less. But we also found that at their current capacity, at their current funding, they're only able to respond to 7% of those calls. So when we look at those opportunities and we talk to have these conversations about reallocation of funds, um, that that's the, those are the opportunities that we can talk about and we can really look at to, to, to say this can work. And I think that uh, the, the way that you're framing this uh, really makes a lot of sense. And I think that a lot of people, if they sort of understood that and because, you know, you hear defund the police and yeah. that, you know, hey, that sounds like pretty anti-law enforcement. Right, yeah. But actually what we're talking about is something the law enforcement community has been complaining about and, and telling telling us about for years and years that, hey, we, 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 we have to be social workers. We have to be psychiatrists. We have to, you know, that we have to do all these things that we're not really trained for, that we're not really comfortable doing. It's unfair. And it's, it's, it's really unfair. What we have asked our police uh, officers to do is to solve our city's uh, poverty issues, to solve our city's uh, uh, mental health issues, to solve our homeless issues, uh, to solve our opioid issues. And then we're going to strap a, a camera on you and judge you when you mess up. That's yeah. not fair and that's not right. And so as we have this conversation, we need police to be a part of it because uh, I, to your point, um, they, they have been asked to, to, to do way, way too much. And what, the difficult part, though, I would say in terms of the of, of reform and, and I'm thinking about, you know, any pushback that we have gotten and we, we are getting we're getting heavy pushback and we're getting um, I've had not death threats, but. Uh, we've had issues around, you know, safety um, uh, because we are advocating for change. Um, but, you know, police 
are feeling like this is an, an attack on them. This conversation is an attack on them personally. And because, you know, we have asked them to do a job that is so unique, they are so tied to policing that when we talk about reforming policing or, ref- or structural racism in policing, it sometimes to some officers can feel like you're specifically calling them racist or saying that they themselves have need, have to be the are, are the problem. And what we're saying is the system is not working for everybody. The system sure, itself sure. maybe can be better and maybe make everybody feel safe because that's what we really want. We want public. You know, I I I don't like the term defund the police because yeah. it, it uh, right away. It has an anti-law enforcement connotation. Yes, and it, and it alienates a huge group of, of, of our community. You know, again, I'm a young African-American. Uh, and when, when I go to the barbershop or when I um, talk to older African-Americans, they're not asking for us to get rid of the police. Now, they don't want their grandson, their black grandson, to, to be followed by the police and have the fear that is traditional to, to black folks um, and their engagement with the police. But they know that police are, are a critical part of our community. And, and if somebody's bringing into your house at three o'clock in the morning, you're not going to call a social worker. You're going to call somebody to come um, with a gun and can, can keep you and your family safe. We all get this. We, can, we are big enough and we are rational enough. We are thoughtful enough and we are caring enough to have this tough conversation and come to a place that really does make us all safer. And and, and that, I certainly believe that is true in Columbus. And, and we, we are embarking on that journey. Gotcha. So um, earlier in our conversation, you talked about Columbus being a progressive place. And, you know, obviously a, a place that's willing to, you know, uh, elect a city council president who's young, who's African-American, who's homosexual, who, you know, can, can better represent, um, you know, different elements of the community. Um, has it always been that way? I know, I know that you grew up in Columbus. Um, how, how, how has it changed in terms of, you know, being a quote unquote progressive city? Uh, it, it, this has been a, uh, this has been a change for, for Columbus. I mean, um, the mayor that I was talking about uh, that I worked for, Mayor Coleman, um, the first African-American mayor, he was also the first Democrat mayor uh, elected in our city in over 50 years, I believe. Um, wow. And so uh, it, it, there had been an evolution in terms of of, of this this city. Now, it, it, as as it becomes, it, we're both growing and becoming more progressive. Um, Columbus now in our county is the largest city by far in our state. Folks around the country hear a lot more about Cleveland or maybe even Cincinnati, but we're uh, twice the size of Cleveland now and three times the size of, of uh, Cincinnati. Um, and I think when, as folks from around the Midwest see Columbus as being open, as uh, being progressive, um, um, being being just uh, in general younger, truthfully, um, a majority of my council is under 40 years old. Literally, I'm a well. Of our of our council um, is, is under forty years old. Um, I think that's pretty that's that's pretty rare. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is. Uh, I'm sure it is, and it was even younger. Uh, one of our council members came on; he was forty five. Uh, but um, most, uh, most, yeah, I'm thirty three. I have another colleague who's thirty three. Another colleague who's thirty four. Uh, colleague who's forty five. And so, yeah, we're we're a very young council, but we're representative of our city. Our city's. Uh, Median age is 32. And so um, uh, we have Ohio State University here, 50,000 students that are part of, of our community. 
Um, we so so I think the progressivism is 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 now becoming just part of our our fabric of who who we are and 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 um, and and, uh, and it does affect our policymaking. Um, I think back to 2016 when Columbus won the Smart Cities Challenge uh, from um, the Biden administration um, that uh, asked communities, asked cities across the country to think about how technology will improve the lives of uh, folks going forward as it pertains to transportation. Um, we won $50 million. Columbus leveraged another $500 million in local um, uh, resources to move forward a project that um, uh, used and, and studied how these new technologies can improve uh, communities. And, um, you know, they're have been a lot of progressive folks in, in well, uh, in well-off neighborhoods. And, um, and, and so we've used them to, uh, to, to be a part of the conversation, but also think about progressivism as it mean, what did it mean in terms of, um, uh, poor or, or more, um, uh, diverse communities as well. Uh, and, and really that, that has been the conversation and, and really the, the, the evolution of Columbus is, that our, our progressive population used to be. Um, we have a, a, a community in our city called Clintonville, and we say that's for all the professors that all OSU work um, or live. Uh, and that was that's that used to be the what progressivism was in Columbus. And now, um, when we when I say that we're progressive, I think about our uh, areas of town. We have a neighborhood called Linden, which is a historically uh, black neighborhood that was really left behind that needed um, a lot mm-hmm. of investment. But they've learned, uh, not even learned, but they now advocate um, and are, are a strong part of the advocacy that that is making policy in our communities now. And, and a big part of where the Smart Cities uh, grant dollars went to. And I I definitely want to talk about um, the the Smart Cities grant that you got, uh, you know, the through the through the competition. Um, you were you were on council. Uh, at this time, can, can you talk a little bit about uh, that process and sort of how it came from idea into fruition? Uh, what, what, yeah. what, did, what did that look like? Yeah, so so uh, we started this as a as a what is it called a pot shot? Like it was, it, you know, we were going up against every other city to get this fifty million dollars, forty million dollars from the federal government, ten million dollars from the Paul G. Allen Foundation to uh, study and focus on um, um, reducing carbon emissions in cities. And I mean, we were going up against Seattle. We were shocked when we made it to the top uh, 20. And then we were completely blown away when we made it to the top seven. And we were not that we were um, packing up shop, but we were saying, okay, well, we've won already because we made it to the top seven because we were down to yeah. like Pittsburgh. Yeah. Seattle and San Francisco and yeah, and, and uh, not to not, not to not to be disrespectful, but yeah. like you know, Columbus, Ohio, like yeah, that, that's, I mean, again, we were pretty, we were we were we were cool. We were like, all right, we, we <laughs> we'll just do what we can do with any money that we can do. You know, like we'll use their this, our, we'll use our application and just do a, a Columbus version of it. Um, sure. And so we were we were. Uh, blown away when we won actually won won the 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 project and and the proposal from from the federal government um and uh then we kind of realized that shoot now we have to do something um <laughs> and, and so and that, and that was really the hard work because what what the federal government was asking us to do was 
to be the guinea pigs and be the, the lab city for the rest of the country and really the rest of the yeah. world about how these technologies can improve the lives of individual people. And as we go through automa- automation, as we um, talk through and figure out how these things will change or it can improve our cities, um, how those things specifically can uh, had to be based on people. And we, we made mistakes, truthfully. I mean, the, the first set of um, focus was on um, platooning of, of, of trucks um, in, mm-hmm. uh, in and around. Of, 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 of autonomous trucks, correct? Of, of autonomous trucks. Um, uh, it, it was, a, yeah, platooning of uh, autonomous trucks um, in, our, in our community. Um, it was um, creating hot spots um, on um, uh, in urban neighborhoods where people could go and, and have internet uh, under these uh, these uh, literal like lamp posts that would have have um, that would broadcast Wi Fi broadcast Wi Fi. Um, so, so yeah, so what we learned in that process was that, you know, in some of the neighborhoods that we were focusing on that, that were higher crime and, and folks were more disconnected, when we told them about this idea with the, the, the Wi-Fi hotspots, they said, we don't even feel safe walking to those places. And we're going to go stand out there with our computers and our, yeah. you know, and our phones like, no. And so what we realized is that we had to, we had to talk to people. I think we, we started the project with good intentions for the community but without talking to the community and sure. uh, midway through, we went back and we said, okay, you, you know, you're right. Um, we knew that uh, in the, this neighborhood that we wanted to focus on that um, they had the highest infant mortality rate in our city that uh, for every 1000 babies that were born, eight didn't make it to their first ba- birthday. And so we created a program called celebrate one, where we try to get, uh, reduce, uh, infant deaths, uh, under one to zero. And so what we did was we, we said, well, wait a minute, we have this technology we're talking about. Uh, so we created this program called, uh, moms to be. And so if a mom to be doesn't have access to a car, you know, she's forced to rely on public transit or non-emergency medical transportation. Um, that had to be provided by government-sponsored health insurances. So moms told us that this can be time-consuming. It can be unreliable. Um, it usually meant that it, it uh, they had to skip doctor's appointments before and after the baby was born. So the Smart Columbus team created an app to help mothers get to and from their appointments. And with this pilot um, program, researchers are assessing whether the service leads to more smiling happy babies. And it's really been a success. There's uh, 500 uh, moms and moms to be in the program. And um, that was, that was one of the pivots that we had to make, but that is that again, using technology to literally change and improve Mm -hmm. lives. And you, you, you mentioned that uh, now that you've, you know, that you've been nationally recognized uh, as, you know, the winner of this competition that sort of like, all eyes are on Columbus for, you know, kind of taking the lead on what it looks like uh, to really be a smart city, yeah. to, to incubate these ideas, to, to figure out how to make them work. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that and sort of, um, I, I, I guess what, what that means and what kind of pressure that puts on you and, and how, how Columbus has responded and kind of, uh, taken up this mantle as kind of America's smart city. 
Sure. I mean, it mean it meant that we had to have a lot of tough conversations around automation. I mean, we are extremely pro union in our city, and as you can imagine, the um, bus driver union, the transportation unions, didn't like the idea of resistant, uh, to- of certainly of of automation, and so. Um, we, when we launched our first two automated shuttles in one in downtown and one in this neighborhood that I was talking about, um, the outcry was real. And what we had to, to really let folks know is one that we don't believe the automated vehicles are replacement yet. Technology isn't hundred percent there yet, but it is on the horizon. It is coming. And so we have to study and, and really learn and get ahead of it and make it work for our communities. Uh, make it solve some of the issues that we currently have even. And so uh, for one of the, the the shuttles, that the autonomous shuttles that we put into the neighborhood, uh, we had to solve the last mile gap. You know, the bus system was, was working, but, you know, it still meant that, again, mothers and kids and folks who had groceries would still have to find ways to their houses a mile or so past where the bus stop was. And so... You know, it put us uh, maybe ahead of in terms of having some of those tough conversations. And and again, um, we are this, this is a test. This is all about research. And so, you know, one of the things that we will when, when the story is written about smart cities in Columbus, um, one of those um, shuttles had an accident uh, mm-hmm. months ago and someone was injured. And so we really had to continue to go back and have those conversations and really figure out how we can make those things work. Now, I think that, that Smart Columbus did a lot nationally for the conversation and internationally as well. And, and we will, uh, you know, have good products and good um, education pieces, I believe, for, for folks to learn from us uh, mm-hmm. thanks to, to technology. But we also have a lot of work to do just internally as a city. I mean, Columbus is still the largest city in the country without a advanced transit system. Uh, we have a bus system um, that was um, really built many years ago and um look we did do a a a redesign uh three years ago that has drastically improved um our our system but we have not uh had an overall we have not added advanced transit we um just got a bus a rapid transit light system our 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 lane on, on one one um corridor and so now we're focused on what our next transit system looks like in columbia sure um, you know, and it, it does look like building up uh, density along certain corridors of growth, um, focusing on um, how we move the most people the most efficiently, um, having a, making sure that transportation is linked to the conversation of housing and equity, um, and and also preparing that someday on some of those routes maybe there will be autonomous things that move. Yeah, how do, how do you how do you build for this? for this kind of autonomous future. Exactly. How do, how do you plan for something that, you know, we don't necessarily know what this is going to look like, but we need to we build it with enough, enough flexibility that, you know, we can, we can integrate these new technologies as they emerge. Yes. And, and that's the process that we're underway with. Um, you know, the, there was a lot of folks that in our community, a lot of transit advocates who um, are, are still despondent because we don't have, and there's not a real conversation about a light rail system. Um, we do think that we're in this teenage, just awkward period where it doesn't make sense to build a uh, a, um, a traditional uh, light rail system anymore, just because now that technology is about to be replaced by the autonomous conversation, by the autonomous technology. Sure. And so what we are trying to do is build the infrastructure and, and get the right of way um, and, and 
for what that new thing looks like. And that that's kind of the task right now of a lot of local leaders is thinking about what can I do today for, you know, to, to be responsive to what I know is going to happen in the future. And we have to think, you know, 20, 50, you know, 80 years down the road of, you know, what, what are our cities going to look like in, in terms of transportation, in terms of technological solutions to urban problems? And how can we put policies in place right now that will allow us to, to take advantage of those in the future? Most definitely. For us, it's a, we have a shorter time frame because so the researchers here believe that Columbus will grow by more than a million people by 2050. Um, and right now, 80% of folks, uh, move to and from their work, uh, by single occupancy car. We don't have the infrastructure, nor do we have the resources to add 800,000 more cars to our, our, uh, city infrastructure. Sure. So we have to start working on something now to be ready for that type of growth that is coming to our community. Uh, and so it really is forcing a conversation. It has forced alignment of the private public and advocates that we have to do something and do something now. And so that's really what gave, has given us the energy uh, and the support to move forward with our with our uh, corridor planning and, and uh, planning out these routes. And you you uh, you just mentioned uh, kind of aligning public and private interest, mm-hmm. um, you know, in 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 just you know researching Columbus's projects, uh, you know, through my years as, uh, as a journalist focused on, uh, local government, it seems like a lot of your projects and a lot of other smart city projects really are pure public private partnerships. Can you, can you talk about the importance of that model going forward? Certainly. No, we have a a strong belief in uh, public-private partnerships in Columbus. We believe it's really the only way to to do big things. Um, government can't do things alone. The private sector can't do things alone. It only works when we come together. And, and really, it's not just public-private; it's nonprofit. Um, <laughs> and 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 we call we have we have this. It sounds cheesy, but we call it the Columbus way. And this is it's a belief in radical collaboration. Um, where we do bring different sectors together. And truthfully, in the last six weeks, what we've learned in this equity conversation is that we've done a good job of the public, the private, um, but we now, what we can do better on is bringing in the people as well as part of those public-private partnerships. Sure. To make sure that that um, when we're talking about these big things and these big initiatives, we were able to um, wholly redo our, our riverfront for instance, um, uh, and that was a public-private partnership um, because we we all knew the the connectedness and the the, uh, the, the necessity for us to have a vibrant uh, downtown riverfront uh, in the downtown. Uh, we were able to go after the uh, Smart Cities grant as a public-private uh, 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 opportunity. Um, and time and time again, the big projects that we have taken on, even the transformation of a historic African-American community, we're done as a public-private uh, partnership, um, and it's not easy. Uh, it takes a level of trust. It takes a level of, um, you know, it, it becomes. It, there are so, so many opportunities for folks to to um, criticizing uh, one another, and we do that, but we do so in a constructive way. That um, that that we, we I guess we we. We worked really hard to to know that when we come to a table, we at least give everybody the benefit of the doubt. They're coming there uh, with the best interest of our city. Yeah, 
coming there in good faith. In good faith. And, and, and that has really helped in moving a lot of us uh, forward. Gotcha. Um, so kind of reframing this conversation a little bit, uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned this idea of Columbus as being sort of on the national stage as, uh, as an example of smart cities and how to accomplish these projects. The lessons that you've learned in going through this, I know that you mentioned previously with the Wi-Fi hotspots that, you know, maybe hey, we didn't really get enough community input on this project. Are there, are there other lessons that you've learned that you could share with other communities that uh, are, are thinking about, you know, the, these quote-unquote smart city projects uh, that are, you know, adapting new technologies and deploying them in their cities? Uh, how do you do that in the right way? How do you do that in a meaningful way? How do you do that in a way that uh, has the most benefit for the community? I think the most important thing is is the community engagement part. We we did community engagement at the beginning of our project, but it was more of us telling the community what this great thing we just won was instead of tell us what you need. And I think that if, if you spend as much time really not on a communications plan, but on like a listening plan um, and a real engagement plan where you, you get outside and use different means of engagement, um, small groups, big groups, uh, uh, technology, online services, but finding ways to really hear from as many people. And, and, you know, traditionally, I think as elected leaders, we do, we, we, we listen, but we don't listen with the intent of acting specifically on what we heard. And that that is really important when, when you, you're talking about these big projects that really will affect a lot of these people's lives in real ways. And especially if you're going to focus the projects in communities, um, it's, it's critically important that you you know what they what the issues are um, and hear unique stories from folks to so that you're solving a real problem. Gotcha. Um, I wanted to I wanted to close on kind of a, a look to the future. What what uh, I, I wanted to leave this question, uh, you know, as open ended as possible. Yeah. What, what what's what's the future for Columbus? What what do you see on the horizon? Uh, is it more more adoption of technology in interesting ways? Is it you know social progression? What you know? What are you what are you optimistic about? You know, I, I'm so excited about Columbus. Um, Columbus, we're going to add a million people, but uh, growing is, is is not the goal. It is uh, being better. You know, being bigger is not not it. It's being better and and thinking about equity and making sure that um, as we grow, we have a real opportunity. You know, I, I keep a map on my desk. Um, it's the 1936 redlining map of Columbus, and and I keep it there to remind myself. Um, and for folks who don't know about redlining and redlining maps, it's you know it, it's it, it's intentional policies that divided up our city and. Um, led to lending practices that disadvantaged uh, African-Americans and uh, propped up uh, white communities. And um, you can overlay with, you know, we do heat maps. A lot of elected officials and local policymakers use heat maps uh, to, to make decisions. And you can overlay our heat map over that redlining map today and see that the, intent, the policies of 1936 are still at play are having yeah. uh, negative outcomes today, uh, yeah. 70, 80 years later. Uh, and so we have to be just as intentional about our uh, planning and our policy 
um, as we think about the future, as as those folks were um, in excluding people. We have to be that intentional about including people and making sure that our, the economy that we continue to grow is inclusive, that the neighborhoods that we support are ones where uh, people can thrive and they can be diverse and that we can have mixed income communities that we build out a transit system that serves everyone, that we focus on our housing issues. I think that we have a real opportunity to do what other cities have not done, which is to grow in an equitable way. Um, and our growth is just going to be, you know, we're, the, we're at the Goldilocks level of growth. We're not like Nashville or Austin who grew so fast that it got ahead of themselves. It got, it was, too, mm-hmm. you know, by the time they realized uh, what was coming, it already, you know, it was too late. It had already happened. <laughs> it already happened. We have just enough time that if we stack hands and if we are thoughtful and if we are inclusive, we can build that that large city um, of two million people that uh, really is inclusive and really does serve everyone. And so that's really what I believe is Columbus's future is a lot of hard work, a lot of growing pains, um, but growth in the right way. Great, great. Well, Councilman Harden, uh, I wanted to thank you again for uh, for taking the time today to to talk to us and to for for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, you have a really interesting perspective and a really interesting story to share, and I think it's going to be valuable uh, for our readership to to listen to your experiences and and take something away from it. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. It was really a pleasure. All right, thank you so much. Thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Omnia Partners Public Sector. Omnia Partners is the most experienced cooperative purchasing organization for state and local government, K-12 education, and colleges and universities. Their immense purchasing power and industry-leading suppliers have produced an extensive portfolio of, of procurement solutions, making Omnia Partners a valued and trusted resource for public agencies nationwide. View their expansive contract portfolio at omniapartners.com slash public sector. 